All right, up here by 11, <clears throat> mission accomplished. How much time do I have? I need an exact number. What? <laughs> it's not what I planned for, but okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Expect the unexpected. All right, guys. We're going to get into the Word today. So we've got a great text. Um, really good text today, and I'm, I'm excited to bring it. So let's prepare our hearts for God's Word. Father, thank you again for your wonderful love for us. Thank you that we can rejoice in song and call to mind your power, uh, your wonders, your righteousness, Lord, your, your saving work. All that you are, God, that we can meditate on and refresh our hearts with. And what a time to come to your word, Lord, in the midst of all that is going on and that we can entrust our, our very lives, our very futures to you, knowing that in Christ our hope is secure. So I pray that this text, as light as it may seem this morning, will be an encouragement to your people. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So yes, as I just prayed, uh, <laughs> have a, a special deviation this morning. I was notified that um, late in the week that we had to be out of here a little, uh, a little earlier. So rather than mind the depths, Lord knowing how long it would take regarding the new heavens and new earth, like that's an exciting topic. That was, that was a difficult one for me to lay aside for a Lord's Day and then to go somewhere else. So I really had to, to wrestle hard with this and, 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 and select a scripture through much prayer and thought that would uh, somehow relate to it, but, but would give us that similar refreshment and anticipation. And, and with that in mind, I was also thinking, in what way could we respond to the numerous uh, and, and, and seemingly uh, unlimited news stories this week regarding the various sins and perversions of man. You know, you, you, we, we can take these things, we can digest them, and it's really hard to respond to them without seeing uh, the fallout and without getting a second opinion. Sometimes we want to react right away to a particular news story, and then, of course, more information filters in later on. And it, it, in some cases, it turns out that we've had it wrong all this time. We didn't we didn't wait, we weren't patient, we didn't properly analyze what was coming uh, through the channels. And so, even now, it's hard to respond uh, to some of these issues with a lot of clarity. And yet, unless you live under a rock in the United States of America, where we are constantly inundated with bad news, um, I am sure you have noticed this constant onslaught of the various expressions of rebellion against God. And then other bad news that accompanies that. And so one of the reasons that we can gather together on the Lord's Day is simply look at the text of Scripture and to be encouraged. And that's what I would like to do today. I would like to take time today to encourage you by simply drawing your minds to God. I mean, that's the, that's, that's, that's the dead giveaway in all of this. Whenever we're tempted to be discouraged... Whenever our faith falters, whenever our heart is weary, whenever our mind is just full of all of these often terrible things that are going on and we're finding it difficult to look away, the first place we are to go is to God Himself. 
to draw our hearts to Him, to simply take time to think about Him, who He is. And sometimes that doesn't mean always mining the depths down to the nth degree in the last detail about what, what God says of Himself. And, and, and to tell the truth, we know that that really is an inexhaustible task. We, can, we, we will never be able to exhaust all that is in God. And yet, we are able, by His grace and by His revelation, to be able to explore His Word and to know Him better. But think about the things that we've been up against. Think about the things that are constantly coming our way. I mean, the economy, for instance, is only the start. I mean, we can, we can p- complain about bad gas prices all day long, rising food costs, the mysterious fires at food processing plants. We can speculate all we want about what actually is going on there. And that's only the beginning, right? We have, once again, the, I mean, it's June, right? It's Pride Month. Now, now, now put sexual perversion aside. The very fact that there is a Pride Month in the United States of America does not bode well for us as a nation. Pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. We've learned again and again that the Lord calls us to humble ourselves, right? There is no exaltation before God without humility. You exalt yourself apart from grace. You exalt yourself and leave God completely out of the picture. You exalt yourself against Him and He will put you down. We learned that not only from Scripture, but also from Johnny Cash. God is going to put you down. In due time, everyone bows the knee. Whether in defeat or in love and reverence. But yes, we do have this celebration. Every year we're reminded of the glories of homosexuality and transgenderism. Put in our face all the time. Even at the... uh, even in the interest of censuring all who stand against it and who claim God's way of traditional marriage between a man and a woman, that you are who God has made you. If you are born a woman, you are a woman. If you're born a man, you're, you are a man. As one singer quipped, a woman is a woman and a man ain't nothing but a man. Right? It's truth. It's timeless truth because it's how God has made us. It's been revealed in the very fabric of creation. And so the church, we sometimes wonder, where is the church in standing against these things? Where are those who will speak the truth in love and not only reveal the wickedness underlying that whole movement, but also plea for repentance to offer the grace of God and Jesus Christ through the Gospel? We also are still coming to face the rising force and I would even say the cultural threat of cultural Marxism. Okay? We say again, when are we going to stop talking about these things? As long as the church is going to face it, we are never going to stop talking about it. I don't care how sick you get of it, but as long as these things are trying to confront the people of God and trying to manufacture a counterfeit righteousness and preach a counterfeit gospel, who is going to stand up against it but the people of God? And we see the consequences especially historically, when the people of God fail to do so. These things, friends, are not going away anytime soon. And what's interesting about all of this is that it seems to be so engineered. Much of American culture has taken this hook, line, and seeker. We've we've embraced it. We celebrate it. And we condemn those who do otherwise. 
Furthermore, these things are being supported and promoted by our own leaders, by those in political office. It is often said, and it's kind of scary, that when the Lord wants to judge a nation, He gives them wicked rulers. Well, here we are, and we've been here for quite some time. We have wicked rulers. Even though we say, oh, well, this is a constitutional republic. There are elected representatives. Make no mistake, these people see themselves as rulers. They see themselves as, as little gods among men. That we are here to serve them, not vice versa. Another common denominator to keep in mind is that so much of this, when it comes down to homosexuality, transgenderism, wicked rulers who would be gods, cultural Marxism, even though we can't go to great detail in what all of these things represent, I believe the most important thing is this, perhaps, is that what these things come to represent, both individually and collectively, is that they attempt to mar the image of God. Man, or God made man to bear his image. And what we see now is man trying to remake God in his own image, which is blasphemy. And yet here it is. This is, what is. this is what is at work, friends. It is marring the image of God. Even when Adam fell into sin, yes, the image of God was shattered, but it was not completely ruined. Man could be redeemed. Man could be saved. If he would repent and put his faith and trust in God alone and God's grace and His saving provision. And yet it seems that today there is something particularly spiteful about this image-bearing marring. It's as if we have caught someone in the act of slitting their wrist, and then when we make eye contact, they decide that they should then turn the blade to their face. Like I said, there's a spitefulness to it. Even though the light of Scripture has clearly exposed the deviant nature of all of this behavior, rather than repentance, there is rebellion. And I say all this to set the stage for our study this morning because I believe we are at a state and have been at one for a long time where the church needs to re-engage with God in terms of appealing to Him for His intervention. Not just for judgment, but for repentance. That He would bring our own nation to its knees and that we would turn to Him. That people would see the truth of the Gospel and the terrible nature of sin and, give, and, 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 and put our faith in God again. We do need God's intervention. We should always be asking for God to intervene and be involved and to reveal His glory and salvation among the nations. It's a plain and fundamental desire of every Christian, really. But we want to do this and think of God rightly. That is the hope we have. It's the very hope we have. is in God and God alone. And yet, what is the reaction? First of all, it must come from the believers first. It must come from the people of God first. Secondly, we must appeal to the true and living God. We must appeal to the true and living God. And we're never going to do that unless we think of God. So this is something that is a very interesting principle in the Christian life, and it is simply this, the thought of God. Don't worry, I'm getting to the point. The thought of God. The fact that the Christian is one who thinks of God. Okay. Not just 
with our emotions, not with just our feelings and so-called intuitions, but no, that we engage our mind. We think God's thoughts after Him. We ask ourselves, what would God say about this? How does God think about this? And what does God's Word reveal about this? Think of it this way. It's a great quote from one of my favorite authors, Maurice Roberts. He writes this in his book titled, The Thought of God. But think, but think of this quote in our current context. Because so much of the sin that we witness can dishearten us. But hear this. And I quote, The thought of God should be the Christian's panacea. It should cure all his ills at a stroke. And what an infinity there is in the thought of God. Nothing can approach to the idea of the true and living God. But there exists a being who is infinite in power, knowledge, and goodness. That that being cares for me with the perfect love as though I were the only man in existence. That He loved me before I was born and created me to enjoy Him eternally. And that He sent His Son to suffer the agony of the cross to secure my eternal happiness. That surely must be the thought to end all sorrow. It ought to be, and it often is. And I would say, let us think of God in such a way that ends sorrows. And I mean a, a crushing, debilitating sorrow in which we are, in a sense, unable to see the light. I mean, when we think of God and we think of Him in various details and certain characteristics, it should be something akin to opening up a mini-blind. You guys have mini-blinds. You, you, you can open them to varying degrees. You kind of just turn that little stick hanging up in the window. You turn it a little bit. It lets a little light in. You turn it a little more. It lets a little more light in. And then there's, there's this degree to which you can open it to where it allows as much light in as possible. And of course, some days are so irresistibly beautiful, you think, forget the blinds, let's just pull them all the way open so I can see everything outside, completely unobscured. And that is how I would have us see God. As much as we sorrow, as much as we can look at the way that so much of human society and anti-God culture is going, yes, it does cause a degree of sorrow. Because we see it the way God sees us, sees it. The sin of man should bring us no pleasure. There is no sense in which the believer should look at the sin of man and think, oh man, I am missing out. That looks like so much fun. Being a Christian is boring. How lame. I'm going to go do that. Right? There's nothing in a, in, in, in a spiritual, in a, in a spirit and dwelt believer that should lead us to say, that's what I need in my life. Right? So there is a sense in which sin grieves us. Grieves us greatly, and yet... It is not to be so great that one, we fail to call out upon God, and two, we fail to think about who God is in the light of all that is occurring. Think of David. Think of what David wrote. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him, for all the people were embittered. Sometimes that's how people look at Christians, right? So many Christians, so few lions to feed them to. Each one because of his sons and his daughters. But, listen, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. That's how David became strong. There was, and David was a mighty man of valor. This guy was a killer on the battlefield, right? A giant slayer. Killed his ten thousands. Made the king jealous. And yet, was his strength in himself? Not at all. He strengthened himself in the Lord his God. So having set the table with that, the thought of God, the importance of the thought of God, I invite you to turn to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk 
is after Nahum and before Zephaniah, if you need a little roadmap there. We don't often encounter this prophet, but he says some very encouraging things in the context of some very alarming and potentially discouraging things. And that's why we've titled our sermon the way we have this morning, God Often Does Do the Unexpected. We may pray for a variety of things, and when God comes through, when God answers us, He often, I say sometimes more often than not, answers us in a way we do not expect Him to answer. So, let's think of what Habakkuk is enduring, and I think a lot of that is what the church endures. When we look around and we see where society is going, we see where the culture is going. So Habakkuk chapter 1, let's start at verse 1, because this is very important to, to, to our lesson today. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw, How long, O Lord, will I call for help? And you will not hear. I cry out to you, violence! I mean, doesn't that say it all? <laughs> Yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Now remember, the word for iniquity is crooked, to be bent over. He looks at society and see all, all that is crooked. As if to say, is anyone out there upright? Does anyone walk with God in an upright manner? But what he sees is crookedness. And, and, and he says, you make me see this. It's, it's as if it's unavoidable. Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. I mean, his troubles, I think, very clearly reflect our own. Perhaps, perhaps without exception. We could go down the line here and see these things in our own country. And in addition to that, we see these things even in the church. In a church that is compromised. You think about verse 4. Therefore, the law is ignored. How many churches fail to give heed to the word, the living Word of God? And then fail to uphold justice, fail to pursue righteousness. But there is very little difference in what a so-called Christian looks like and what an outright pagan looks like. In fact, there's far more resemblance at times. We see violence. I mean, we've been... We've had a front row seat to a number of shootings especially in the last couple of weeks. It's, it's alarming to see the violence at hand. And even though we, we have to take into account that we do live in a country of some 340 million people, and it is a very, very small percentage of what is happening, it in no way undercuts the tragedy that people are being murdered, that people are taking weapons of war and going out and killing others. Violence! It's no wonder our cry is that, because that is what we see. And yet, in the spirit of Habakkuk, the Christian should call to the Lord, should appeal to the Lord. And in the same sense, we say, how long, O Lord, will we call for help? Sometimes we pray and pray and pray. We ask for the Lord to intervene. We ask for the Lord to prevent certain things from happening. We ask for the Lord to judge those and put an end to those who would carry out such atrocities, and sometimes even those who would, who would piggyback on those atrocities for political benefit. 
Seems like one sin begets another. And then look what Habakkuk says. And I mean, you kind of got to feel the anguish here. Verse 2 again, yet you do not save. See, that's the interest of a Christian where we are simultaneously crying out for the Lord to judge, to execute His justice on wickedness, but also we are asking Him to save, to save His people, to even redeem the unbeliever, to turn hearts back to Him. And yet, for whatever reason, we don't often see that which we want to see. And while God answers, He is faithful to answer prayer. We know that He answers in a way which we do not anticipate. I was thinking about this sermon, read another one written on it, and I think it was preached by my reckoning back in the 70s or early 80s, and it was the same thing, referencing how the church witnesses all these things, and one of the issues was, was communism and even genocidal behavior. And we think, wow, that's, uh, we're, we're, we're over, over 50 years removed from that, and those kinds of things are still happening. And we call out to the Lord, Lord, what gives? Why isn't this changing? And my goal this morning is most definitely not to try to place the blame on one person or a group of persons, but rather to at least say, okay, how can we appeal to God and how can we understand God and what can we understand about Him that will, that will strengthen our faith and lift up our head and, and mitigate our sorrows in times like these? Because quite frankly, friends, I don't see this slowing down anytime soon. In fact, there may be a time where it will increase and even the very church of Jesus Christ may be the target of retribution. We do not know that, but it is even times like these where we can look to God and prepare our hearts. Let me tell you something. As long as we know who God is, as long as that does not change, the church is secure. But that is the bare minimum. The church must know who God is. So we're going back to fundamentalism. Fundamentals to help strengthen us for that day, even if that day is today. What is wonderful about Habakkuk is several of the things we learn act as a catechism. We do catechism every Sunday here. We read a question, we answer it, and yet often we unfortunately relegate catechisms to children, the realm of children and the immature. But one of the reasons we catechize children is to keep them from acting like children. We don't want them to stay children. We don't want them to stay infantile. We want them to learn those bedrock truths of God so that they can grow into a strong and mature man and woman of God. We all desire that for our kids. But here's the truth. Here's the truth that we have to see in all of this is that someone is always going to be catechizing you. I think that's what part of the reason we're so distressed is that we're taking it in from both channels. We hear the truth of God a little bit, and then we get exposed to some kind of smut or trash on the internet or through some various news outlet, and it comes in, again, seems infinite forms. But just remember that. Everything you look at is sending a message. It's catechizing you. It is, it is expressing reality somehow and telling you what that reality is. And it's telling you, you must embrace this reality, otherwise there's something wrong with you. There's no neutrality in this. When someone tells you something, they are in, in a very real way telling you, you must believe this. And if you fail to believe this, there is something wrong with you. There is something, and I would say this, there is something wrong with the way you are bearing your image. Right? But who's true? Who's right? See, even the Word of God tells us that. If we violate the Word of God, we are failing in faithfully bearing the image of God. 
we're getting catechized from all directions. And so we have to start somewhere in very basic truths, very basic things that we know about God which provide a reliable and unmovable rock while we're surrounded by sinking sand. But at the end of this, we want to come out standing and standing firm. Right? So, back to our text. We looked at the first few verses. Okay? So, Habakkuk says, Lord, this is happening. Do something. Please do something about it. Lord, anything. Okay? Just, just act. Intervene. Judge and save. Now, God answers in verse 5. He says, look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder. Oh, he's like, oh, this is going to blow you away, right? You need to consider this. Because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. Okay, sounds good. Keep talking. And then he says, verse 6, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves, moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings and rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. Before I go on, does that sound like a response that you would desire? You're an Israelite living in the land. Lord, look at all this wickedness. Please do something. Okay, I'm going to bring in a pagan people to judge you. They're unstoppable. That's what he's saying. This is a mighty army. The Chaldeans, otherwise known as the Babylonians, coming in to judge. See, we often do that. We, we ask God to intervene right, with the, with the most noble of intentions. But I think sometimes at the heart of that, we, we hold this secret motive which says, Lord, please judge, please save, but do so in this manner. And please do so not in this manner. So you think of Habakkuk. Lord, please do something. Wait, you're going to do what? You're going to do this? You're going to bring the Chaldeans? I wasn't asking for this. This wasn't in the cards. I did not expect this, and yet this is the Lord's exact plan. He's giving it in very shocking detail. Let's look at verse 11. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on, but they will be held guilty. They whose strength is their God. Oh, we, see, I'm going to bring this pagan people. Their strength is not Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. Their strength is their own God. They worship the God of strength. They don't worship the God, the true and living God, who gives strength. Right. So, what's a prophet to do? Habakkuk's writing in about 610 to 605 B.C. It's when it's thought that this book was written. When you, when you know especially when this is going to happen. See, in some sense, we're blessed with uncertainty. We really don't know how this is all going to pan out. And on one hand, it can bring us even more distress. At least a back hook knew. Well, what do we know? We're crying for justice. We're crying for salvation. We're crying for the Lord to intervene. And yet, the principle stands that often the Lord 
responds and answers prayer in the least likely of ways, and some of those least likely of ways are unwelcome ways. And yet, we see in Habakkuk's response a framework for how we are to think of God. When God responds, we think of Him this way. This is by no means an exhaustive list, but it is a fundamental list. When facing these kinds of things, we must get God right. And so some of the most fundamental things are spoken here of Habakkuk. So, here we begin. Here we begin. Here is the, here is the heart of it. Here is the, the thought of God which we bring to the forefront of our, of our minds. So look at verse 12. The first thing he says is this. He asks himself a question. Are you not from everlasting? That's the first place his mind goes. It's not, Lord, you are doing wrong. Surely you've gotten the wrong nation. No, I think he knows that there is wickedness in Judah. There's wickedness in his nation. But the first thing he appeals to, and I think the first thing we should appeal to, is the very being of God. His being is unchangeable. That's the first principle. He says, are you not from everlasting? I mean, that's one of the first things we discover about God when we open our Bibles. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? He was there. Right? He was there before the beginning. He is eternal. It's interesting that this is a very important truth of God. In Genesis 21.33, we reread this from the life of Abraham. It says, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Very distinguishing characteristic of God. Right? Because even in that day, culture was rife with idolatry. Abraham himself, when he was Abram, was called out of Ur of the Chaldees. He was called He was Abram the idolater. And then he became Abraham the father of the faithful. Abraham the believer. But he recognized at a certain time that when he called upon the name of the Lord, he was calling upon a God who was unique in His being. And unchangeable. The everlasting God. With no beginning and absolutely no ending. One of the reasons we read... Deuteronomy 32 this morning for our Scripture reading is that's the Song of Moses. And nearly everything Moses expresses in that song is expressed by Habakkuk. Right? Bedrock, baseline truths regarding who God is that we are always calling to mind, especially in the midst of opposition and impending judgment. We go back to the very fact that God is unchangeable in His being. He is ever lasting. In Deuteronomy 33.27, we read this, the eternal God is a dwelling place. And underneath are the everlasting arms and He drove out the enemy before you and said, destroy. What's the point here? Is that God's people were to find security in His everlasting nature. In His eternal person. There was never a sense where they could say or justify, where has God gone? God was always there. He would always be and always will be with His people. And there was a certain undeniable security that a believer could rest in when it came to the everlasting nature of God. 
Are you not from everlasting? Listen to Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. What a thing to ponder about the true and living God that, again, that mitigates our sorrows, that keeps us from being crushed beneath the weight of so many temporal things that are here today and may abide for some time, but ultimately will be squashed. Before the mountains were born, even from ever, everlasting to everlasting, you are God. There was this unlimited vision the psalmist had regarding God's existence and God's person. We could add to that the fact that God, even in His being, He is, self, he is self-existence. Think of, think of mercy within that context. The fact that God does not need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need a people. He is totally self-existent and self-sufficient. And yet... He desires to reveal His everlasting nature and even we could say His everlasting love and faithfulness to His people. By which we can respond, you are God. In the uh, timeless literary masterpiece, Pride and Prejudice, Elizabeth Bennet uh, says, "What what are men compared to rocks and mountains? We read a psalm like this and say, What are rocks and mountains compared to an everlasting God? There is something timeless when we, you know, we look at, we go outside, we look at the grandeur of Pikes Peak and Cheyenne Mountain, the front range and and, and, and all of its beauty. And there's something in our mind which said, well, that's always kind of been there and it's going to be here long after we have been here. Well, we could say of the mountains, even when the mountains have melted, even when the mountains have gone away, God remains. God remains that everlasting God. True to His own Word, true to His own people. Are you not from everlasting? And we can say, yes and amen. O Lord my God, my Holy One. Here's the second one. O Lord my God, my Holy One. Let's just think of these together. My Holy One. We've talked a lot about holiness. We could say here that His presence then is undeniable. That's the second thing we call to mind. God is not only everlasting, eternal, but He is holy. He is our Holy One. He is our Lord. He is our God. We've talked a lot about holiness. I think we talked about it last week, that holiness primarily covers the fact that God is devoted and committed to His people. He's devoted to His own glory. And of course, He desires to dwell in our midst. One of the gravest sins that Israel committed, especially early on, was denying that God was with them. That was what was wrapped up in in their discipline in the wilderness. When they when they denied the holiness of God, they were effectively saying, God has abandoned us. Right? And if you are committed to someone, if you are devoted to the well-being and salvation of someone, and they accuse you of being absent and uncaring and unloving, and that they will ultimately fail you, you'd be pretty offended too. And it's really amazing that as righteous as God, as, as God is, He didn't strike them there on the spot. No, He was patient. Many of them did not enter the promised land, and yet He preserved them in their desert wanderings. Kept their clothes and sandals from wearing out. And He was still with them. He still proved to be a holy God. And that's something that if you were in Habakkuk's case, that might be the challenge. It may be a challenge whenever we face mounting persecution. I'd say that is one of, that is one of the initial things where the enemy comes and tempts us to doubt and tempts us into unbelief, is to say, 
God is not with you. God is not holy. God has abandoned you. It's one of the, I mean, you think about it, fundamental to unbelief is that. That God is not with me and God does not care and pays me no mind. But He has better things to do than to take care of me. In fact, His judgment is the very expression that He does not care about me anymore. Nothing can be further from the truth. We've already talked about the fact that God does not judge the righteous with the wicked. And even though alongside judgment there will be persecution to the believer, we never forfeit the presence of God. And so we can say with the fullest assurance that God is our Holy One. And that He is Lord. That He is my God. Think about Lord. The fact that God remains faithful. That God, being the Holy One, will always be holy. He will always draw near to His people, to those who He has called to Himself. So that Lord, the I Am that I Am, speaks more, of his, more than just His eternality. It speaks to His covenant name and that He is faithful to His covenant. It speaks to how He reveals Himself in all of His glory to His people. Consider Exodus 34, 6-7. Then the Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. He who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, and yet will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. So even in that name, Lord, is so much that points to God as a, as a God who is good, as a God who is faithful, and as a God who is abundant in His grace and provision to His people. That is, again, that is a temptation that we face in the midst of persecution and especially cultural opposition. There's that temptation to fall in. God may have revealed Himself, but He has failed. He is none of these things. Fall in line. Here is what you ought to think. Here is your God. There is no God but yourself. There is no God but the party. Right. There's no God but the state. And the list goes on. But any God but the God of the Bible. That's a temptation. In spite of the fact that God has so clearly revealed Himself to us and to His people. And this is what Habakkuk is reiterating. This is what he is repeating. This is, this is a catechism for all time. O Lord, my God. And note that note that personal possession that Habakkuk acknowledges. You are not just God. You are, you are my God. Was, not, was not, that not the promise fulfilled? You will be my people and I will be your God. You will be my possession, but I will also be your possession. I, the Lord, will be your greatest treasure. Let me tell you, that is a treasure worth holding on to when the church has its back against the wall. When the church is tempted to get discouraged, as optimistic as some of us may be about our eschatology and a Christianized, godly society sometime in the future, sometimes it's hard to maintain that in our own mind's eye when so many things are going sideways. When so much of society and so many cultural norms are walking away from the Lord and not regarding His law, and the church is applauding along the way. It's hard, it's hard, to, it's hard to maintain that. It's hard to maintain that emotionally, but it doesn't deny what the Word of God says. Right? I mean, Habakkuk is the same prophet that says the knowledge of the, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the promise that is upheld from the lips of God Himself. And so we can move to the next one. 
that God's faithfulness is unassailable. What does is, what is, uh, Habakkuk conclude? Just from a couple thoughts of God, we will not die. I mean, what a blessing that we experience today, that in, that in Christ we get to not die. That we are the recipients of, God's, of, all that, of all that God promised in the Old Testament. We enjoy those promises. Those promises are fulfilled in the true Israel, the church of the living God. We will not die. I mean, what comfort comes from that simple realization? We're not going to die. Especially with all this judgment language throughout many prophets that God gives His people, the, the appearance is that they are going to die. They're going to be puked out from the land, and then who knows what else is going to happen after they're delivered over to captivity. But this references the very hope of the psalmist. In Psalm 118, 17-18, he says this, I will not die, but live. Oh, and there's more. And tell of the works of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but He has not given me over to death. Now think of that in the, in the context of the church today. We are going to be disciplined. God will always discipline and purify His church. And yet we can say, we will not die but live. There will always be a remnant somewhere. There will always be someone who will say, this is the Lord's discipline. This is, the good, this is a good thing. And we will tell of His works. The point of discipline isn't to shut our mouths and not tell of God's goodness. Not at all. We will tell of the works of the Lord. He has not given us over to death. So was Israel's hope and so is our hope today. I mean, this is reminiscent of promises all throughout the Old Testament that the Lord gave to Israel. Think of Genesis 26.3 where God tells Isaac, you know, remain in the land for a while. I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants, I will give all these lands and I will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. He confirms that to Jacob as well in Genesis 28. 13 through 14, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. Very important because he made the initial promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All people on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. And so it was when Israel took the promised land. The psalmist acknowledges this in Psalm 132, verse 14. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. This is God dwelling in the midst of His people. That is where He will be. That is where He desires to be. Now, even, even after Israel screwed up big league and was exiled from the land, they still awaited a promise. Listening to Isaiah 14.1, when the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and again choose Israel and settle them in their own land, then strangers will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. This is telling, this, this promise is talking about the regathering of Israel after the first exile, that they will come back into the land, and then an even further promise where strangers, that is Gentiles, will join them and they will become the new covenant assembly, the church of God in Christ Jesus. And so that's the promise they look forward to. That's how they know they're not going to die is because the Lord promised already that He will regather them, that He will show compassion to them, that still they await the promise given to Abraham that the Messiah will come, that the, the one true seed will come and redeem man and save him from their sins. And that promise has not 
come into question simply because Israel failed to be faithful. Listen again to the Word of God. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst. There's that holy theme again. Declares the Lord, many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. Then I will dwell in your midst and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. The Lord will possess Judah as his portion in the holy land and will again choose Jerusalem. That is precisely why Habakkuk knows that they will not die. Because for, for them to die would mean that the Lord has failed to keep his promise. Right? So he is unshakable in that regard. He is always faithful. Here's, here's another one. Reading on here. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. So that may be hard at first to admit. He recognizes the goodness of God's revelation. Yes, Lord, you have appointed them to judge us, these wicked pagan Chaldeans. Yes, this, your word, you have spoken. Your word is true. Your word is good. And, I see, and, and even Habakkuk can see the value in that. But they were appointed to judge. He may not like it that much, but he understands that this is coming from God and that it's necessary. So this is the, ne- the next thing, is that his judgment, his justice is unmistakable. This is very clear. Right? You, O rock, notice that. The Lord has not ceased to be the immovable, unshakable rock of Israel. Right? He, the rock speaks to stability, security, reliability, immensity, right? quality. Speaks of so many things in regards to God. And ultimately, it would be Christ who is now the rock of our salvation. To whom we fly for, for grace and for security and righteousness. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge. And you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Right? All throughout Scripture is this reinforcement of God's love of justice. A love of righteousness. And then he goes on attached to this. His justice is not only unmistakable, but look at 13. His righteousness is unimaginable. Look at this. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. And you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Think about that. So pure, so undefiled, so righteous is the gaze of God. He cannot look upon evil points ahead to the imputed righteousness of Christ on our behalf, that for God to be able to look upon us with any favor and without judgment, we would have to don the robe of righteousness. The robe of salvation. So that He can reckon us with as being as righteous as His own Son. And look upon us with the same favor and delight as He does His own Son. See, you, know, you notice the two extremes there? It's either all look or no look. right? There's no... Veil my eyes a little bit. No, he can't look upon evil. He can only look upon that which is righteous. Listen to Psalm 34, 15-16. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. See that? See the divergence there. It's one or the other. There's no in between. We understand that He is judge. And we, and we, and we can take confidence in this because that is one of the, that is one of the things that puzzles us about an unbelieving culture and all the sin that is contained in it. Because often, the sin perpetuates and it gets louder and it gets denser. It gets more instantly recognizable. 
And we wonder like Job did from Job 21.7, why do the wicked still live, continue on, also become very powerful? We're looking at that today. (laughs) The wicked have become very powerful and they often live a very long time. And they afflict they afflict the Lord's people. And they believe that what they do is righteous. And yet we know that the Lord has not gone anywhere. The Lord is watching. The Lord knows. The Lord has not been caught by surprise. Caught by surprise. He is still sovereign. He is still all-powerful. We know that. Listen to Psalm 11.4. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the Son of Men. That still happens today. Except His holy temple is us. He dwells in His holy temple, the church, and He knows what is happening. His eyes behold, and they test the sons of men. He knows the stuff each man is made of. He knows whether there is righteousness or unrighteousness. He knows whether there is faith or unbelief. And so the Lord tests. But these are the things we call to mind. And these two may be the the two, two great challenges. We may acknowledge that He's eternal, that He's holy, that He's with us, that He keeps His promises, but it's so hard sometimes to maintain this important truth that He is also just, that He is righteous, that just because the unrighteous and wicked continue to gain wealth and power and favor and influence in society, that does not mean that God has ceased to be righteous, nor does it mean that He has ceased to be able to uphold His righteous standard. No, He is still the same. We even know from Hebrews, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So before we go to the throne of God and call into question His character, let us ponder who God is. And let us trust in that. We think, you know, it is, it is permissible to ask God questions. But to, to go and, and presumptively to the throne of grace and act like we know better than He does should be a fearful thing to us. But here's our response in closing. A couple verses. Is that God will bring His justice as well as His salvation. In Habakkuk 2.3, listen to this. He says, For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal and it will not fail. So he, His word will come to pass. But listen to this. The, re, the response is important. Verse 4, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. Just talked about pride at the beginning. But the righteous will live by his faith. Who is the righteous one? The one who in all of these things, in all this apparent calamity and judgment, is the one who trusts God. Is the one who, when he thinks of God, says, yes, this is who the Lord is. He is my God. He is with me and I will not die. And I will trust everything I am to him. And with the outflowing of that promise and its consummation, verse 14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. We can take heart that that, no matter what goes on, no matter what our eyes see, that that is the end, right? That is going to happen. That is the inevitable summing up of human history. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord. So what does the Christian do? Start familiarizing yourself with the knowledge of that glory now as it blossoms into an all-encompassing, earth-filling, glorious knowledge. We do this through faith. And we know that He will be faithful to judge. Even in this, 
He is faithful to judge the Chaldeans whom he is using to judge Israel. Well, they're not simply going to rest on their laurels and get away with it. He is going to judge them as well till only the rule of the Lord remains. And he will do the same to all peoples who rebel against him. He says this in chapter 3, In indignation you marched through the earth, you went forth, or in anger you trampled the nations, you went forth for the salvation of your people. Salvation in judgment, all rooted in God's character. Now let us close with this passage, and I mean it this time. Because I think sometimes we look at, we look at what's going on and we think the same way. Listen to what Habakkuk says. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there, the, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there will be, there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength, and He has made my feet like hinds' feet and makes me walk on the high places. Okay? Think of it in those terms. Everything that is familiar to us, Habakkuk says, may be done away. All of these things that we expect, the normal things of life, fig trees blossoming, grass growing, right? All the things that we enjoy, those common things that we just expect when we wake up in the morning. If all those were to be removed, if they were cut off, to be interrupted, yet that would not be a basis for ceasing to praise the Lord. But the one who exults in the Lord is the one who thinks of the Lord in these times. And who still rests his trust in Him and says, no, though these things change, the Lord my God has not changed. And note too, let's leave with this very important truth. You notice that Habakkuk's situation hasn't changed at all. Sometimes we expect that. We can pray for a changed situation, but often it will not happen. Habakkuk's situation has not changed. But his equipment has. Okay. He has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. Normally we pray for the Lord, hey, lower those high places. We want serene green crystal valleys, right? We want beauty, we want ease, we want comfort and refreshment. But what does He do? If He does not change that, and many times He does not, what does He do? He gives us hinds feet. That is, He gives us everything we need to think of Him, to call Him to mind, and to rest our continual faith and hope in Him. That is what it is to have hinds feet. So we can walk those perilous places, walk in the midst of those times of trouble and all of the sorrows and affliction that the world may give. But He gives us everything we need to endure it and to endure it faithfully. Sounds strange. But God's ways are strange indeed and it shouldn't surprise us. Rather, His strange ways should comfort us. Even when we say, wait, What? Everything is wrong. Everything that is wrong in this world is because of man's sin. Yes, we would say man has thoroughly screwed it up and continues to screw it up. And yet, what did he do to restore and exalt it? He sent a man. Wait, what? <laughs> and what did Christ do? Took our sin upon Himself, died on the cross, rose victoriously on the third day, and sits now triumphant at the Father's right hand, making all things new. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Let's pray. Father, thank You again for Your love and goodness. Thank You for Your Word and hope from a backup that we can 
think of you and how the thought of God can bring us such great comfort. And even though we have sorrows aplenty, so many sorrows we could cry out to you for, Lord, especially in light of the way that our own country is going and even many places around the world that are forgetting God. They're forgetting you. They're forgetting that you are the Holy One, that you are the everlasting God, that you are Yahweh, that you are holy. They forget that we even find our very life and breath in you. And yet it is only those who trust in you who can say with the greatest confidence, we will not die. And we will not die because death is a conquered enemy. And we will live in you. We have that, we have that promise. We do have that precious promise in you. And I pray, Lord, that today we can at least consider it, latch on to it, and know that you are our God, who in Christ reigns forever and ever. And that no matter what happens, no matter what kingdom may rise, no matter what cultural perversion may come our way, we can not only stand against it faithfully, but proclaim Your name and good news with boldness, anticipating both Your saving and judging work. Lord, I pray that Your name would be praised in the things uh, spoken this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.